Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We are coming to the end of our study of this book we've been looking at over the last few months. This morning we are looking at chapter 9. We'll look at chapter 9 this week and then finish up with the end of chapter 9 and beginning or the entire brief chapter 10 next week. This is God's word. He is speaking to you through his word and through his spirit. Please give him your full attention. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces, and the satraps, and the governors, and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Delphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Eridai, and Vazatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder." Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. In one sense, this chapter is the climax of our story that we've been looking at over these last few months. It gives the account of what happened on that infamous date, Adar 13th. 482 B.C. That is the day when the two decrees 
that had driven all the events of the story, the two decrees were to be implemented in Persia, in the entire empire of Persia. First of all, the decree of Haman, which was to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, in the word of the decree, in the words of the decree, all the Jews in the empire, all the Jews on the planet were to be killed on that day, according to the decree that Haman wrote up in the name of the king. The second decree, of course, is Mordecai's decree, Mordecai the Jew. And his decree was a counteracting decree to give permission to the Jews to destroy, kill, and annihilate their attackers, their enemies. As you read this story, this is the climax in one sense, but it's also, as you read it, it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Unlike the engaging storytelling that the author has been using all through this book, this chapter reads in a kind of a bland and, and uh, matter-of-fact sort of way. It has less detail about this bloody day than a, than a Wikipedia article would have. It's interesting to me that the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't tell his story like a Marvel movie. You know how the Marvel movies go. you got an hour of story development and character development, and then an hour of battle scenes. That's how those stories go. But that's not how Esther goes. Yes, the battle, in a sense, is the climax of the story, but the author doesn't want to focus there. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to focus on the battle. Doesn't give us the details. Just the bare numbers. Because the point of the story of the book of Esther, he doesn't want us to lose sight of it, is what is said earlier, or actually what we have here in verse 1, it summarizes what the whole rest of the earlier parts of the book have told us, which is that the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, but the reverse occurred. There's the key phrase for the entire book. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. We have seen that even though God is not named in this book, he is everywhere in this book. His fingerprints are on every verse. He is orchestrating behind the scenes all the events to bring about the great reversal that this verse 1 is talking about. Where the enemies wanted to destroy the Jews, but instead the Jews destroyed their enemies. And we have seen that this great reversal in the story of Esther is a symbol, it's a shadow, it's a, a foreshadowing, a type of the great reversal of all scripture, which we call the gospel. The defining moment, actually, of this story, we've already covered back in chapters 6 through 8. The defining moment in this story is the exaltation of Mordecai and the fall of Haman. Mordecai, representing God's people, is exalted, and Haman, the enemy of God's people, is destroyed. What we notice here in chapter 9 is that Mordecai's stature is only increased in the eight months between when his decree went out and this day of implementation on Adar 13th. It says in verse 4, Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. What's fascinating is you read between the lines here, what's happening is, you know, this incredible change of fates of the Jewish people is typified in, in, in Esther. I mean, 
Could you have imagined if you were a Jew living as a conquered people, largely slaves, lower class Jews in the Persian Empire, to having one of your people become queen of the, of the greatest empire on earth, and another one of your people as the right-hand man, the second most powerful person in the kingdom. But it goes even beyond how God used Esther and used Mordecai to change the whole perception of the leadership structure and the culture toward the Jews. Notice how this emphasized in this chapter. Actually, if you go back to the end of chapter 8, the very last verse says, many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And then in verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And then significantly, don't miss this point that the the author throws in here in verse 3. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. What a dramatic reversal of the Jews in the eyes of the Persians. The officials of the government were actually helping the Jews on that day. The Jews are about to go to war with their enemies. And the officials of the government are helping them. We don't know if that meant they they gave them weapons. That's certainly possible. Maybe even provided troops to help them. We don't know. Somehow they helped the Jews. What a reversal. What the Persians were recognizing is that the God of the Jews, Yahweh, and even King Ahasuerus was now favoring the Jews. And you know, in our own country... When the winds of the politics change, people who are self-interested will switch sides in a hurry because they want to back the winning side. And that's what's going on in Persia right now. In verses 5 to 10, we get the casualty reports. They start flowing in at the end of the day on Adar 13th. 500 of the enemies of the Jews were destroyed by the Jews in the capital city of Susa along with the ten sons of Haman. And then later, in verse 16, we see that 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed throughout the empire of Persia. Now, King Ahasuerus sees what has happened, and he says to to Queen Esther, what more can I do for you? What more do you want? And interestingly, She asked for more killing on another day, which is an audacious request. But that shows the favor that she had in the eyes of the king at the moment. She must have still perceived there was a threat in the capital city of Susa. And if there's going to be a threat to the Jews, that's where it would be greatest. And the reason for the killing and the display of the bodies of of the ten sons of Haman was to end any possible threat. So she wants one more day to make sure that there would be no threat to the Jewish people. And 300 more people die in Susa on that second day. Now you remember back at the beginning of our study, we talked about how people misread the book of Esther. They see it as a a romantic comedy sometimes. You know, they focus on this, you know, storybook romance between Esther and and the king. And we looked into the details and said, you know, it's not pretty at all. Awful lot of sin and depravity on everybody's part that leads to the circumstances. There's no Disney-type ending to the story here either. 
Yes, the good guys win. God's people are delivered, but only through much bloodshed. How does this fit with the gospel? What does this story have to do with the plan of redemption, which is the whole, what the whole Bible is about? Where's the gospel in this? We need to talk this morning on a day in which we remember those who fought the battles of war on our behalf and gave us the freedoms that we have. And somehow it's kind of appropriate that we talk about spiritual war today. The holy war that has been going on from the beginning and won't conclude until time is ended. You see, the gospel, yes, the gospel is about grace. It's about mercy. It's about forgiveness. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that the gospel is about judgment as well. If you don't recognize that there's judgment coming from God, then you won't understand the gospel. The work of the redemption brought about by Jesus Christ takes place in the context of a war. A war of good against evil, of light against dark, of submission against rebellion, righteousness against sin, a holy war. This war began before creation, when Satan led a revolt in heaven and was cast out. The war came to earth right after creation when Adam and Eve decided to side with Satan instead of submitting to God and joined his rebellion and were cast out of the Garden of Eden. At that point, God had every right to rain down judgment upon the earth and start over fresh if he wanted to. But God showed mercy and he formed a covenant with his people. And he made a promise to his people, which is alluded to in something that God said to Satan about Satan's coming judgment for his rebellion. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And thus, enmity has been at the core of this creation ever since. This conflict has played out from that point on personified in the conflict between Abel and Cain, between Jacob and Esau, between Isaac and Ishmael, between Israel and her enemies, and many centuries later here between Mordecai and Haman. The Jews were supposed to represent God and the kingdom of light and the kingdom of righteousness. Sometimes they did. Too often they didn't. Too often they looked more like the world and conformed to the world and took sides with the world. But there has always been the enemy of God and his people. And they represent Satan. They still do. Those two sides are still very much at war. And the book of Esther is written with this conflict, this big picture conflict in the background. Remember back in chapter 2, we pointed out that Mordecai was a son of Kish. Why is that significant? Because Kish was the father of Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. In chapter 3, we are told that Haman was a descendant of King Agag. He was an Agagite. 
He was a descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. The author makes sure that we don't miss that, so that we understand that the conflict between Mordecai and Haman is a reflection of this ongoing conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The Amalekites were the first, the people of Haman, they were the first people to attack the Israelites when they were delivered by God's power from slavery in Egypt. The Amalekites attacked them without provocation. And God delivered his people in their time of great vulnerability. And he made a promise, kind of a unique, specific promise in Exodus 17, when he says that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation and will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And here we are, 400 years later, King Saul is commanded by God to finish the work, to destroy the Amalekites, Amalekites, to leave no trace of their existence on earth, to fulfill this judgment that God had pronounced centuries earlier. But Saul disobeys. And Saul spares some of the plunder from the battle. And he spares King Agag. And he lost his kingship. God took it away because he chose the wrong side. Another indicator that this chapter, chapter 9, is to be seen against the backdrop of this large conflict, this holy war, is the phrase. You probably noticed it. Three times the phrase is used. Every time scripture repeats something three times, you better pay close attention. God's emphasizing something. He's underlining it three times. Make sure you don't miss it. He says, they lay, this is in verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16, they laid no hand on the plunder. That should jump out at you because if you remember Mordecai's edict, which was mirroring, using exactly word for word, the same wording that was used by Haman when he pronounced this judgment against uh, the Jews and, and asked for the Jews to be uh, decreed that the Jews be killed, annihilated, destroyed, and that they be plundered. That plunder was to be taken from the Jews when they were destroyed. So when Mordecai wrote his decree, he used the same exact language and explicitly allowed plundering by the Jews against their enemies as they defended themselves against their attackers. And yet, the author points out three times they took no plunder. Why? Because they understood this was a holy war. Because that's the rule, one of the major rules of holy war. That when the Amalekites were to be destroyed, no plunder was to be taken. When Joshua led the armies of Israel into the Canaan, into the promised land, they were to destroy the peoples and take no plunder. Remember what happened to Achan when he took some. He and his family came under judgment. He and his family died because he took plunder. Saul took plunder from his battle with the Amalekites and he lost his kingship. You see, God hates sin God is holy, God is just, God must punish sin. And anybody who lives in rebellion against God, every breath they breathe is an act of grace because they deserve immediate judgment. And there was a moment when God destroyed all the enemies of his people directly when he sent the flood in Noah's day. Everyone who deserved his eternal judgment received it in the flood. God acted directly. 
But there are other times in the Old Testament where God works through his people to bring judgment. As in the case of the Canaanites or the Amalekites. That was a temporary shadow of this much larger, much more significant spiritual war that was going on. God acting in a unique way through his people who were a theocracy, a nation in his name, and they, acting in his name, brought judgment against their enemies. And the Jews in the day of Mordecai understood that these Amalekites, so to speak, anybody who identified themselves with Haman's decree, Haman the, the Amalekite, the Agagite, Anybody who identified with themselves and championed his decree and tried to carry it out, they were the enemies of God's people, and God's people carried out God's judgment against them and took no plunder. Okay, there's some very, and I don't have time to dig into, there's some very hard teachings in the midst of all that, but I, the time I have left, I need to just address the question, so what? What does that do with, have to do with us? Okay, that was something that Israel was commanded to do, the Jews were commanded to do long ago. I don't see any command in the New Testament to take up swords and go bring people through some kind of jihad into some kind of submission. We're not commanded to do that. Where's the gospel in this? How does this apply to us as the church? Remember what Paul said at the end of his life? He says, I have fought the good fight. He wasn't using a metaphor there. He was speaking literally. The Apostle Paul fought in the Holy War. He fought the fight well. And he completed the battles he was was called to fight. This Holy War that started before creation, that came to earth, and is described in Genesis 3.15 as the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, this war has been going on, is going on right now, and it will continue until Jesus Christ returns. bring it to an end let me just give you as a way of perspective just to build your worldview today this is this is something that this expectation of the event that's described in revelation 19 at the end of scripture should be a part of you the way you embrace every day of your life this is what's going to happen one day when the war comes to an end revelation 19 beginning in verse 11 then i saw heaven open and behold a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The war goes on, but we are in a, in a way in a much more significant phase of it now, since Christ has come. The church of the Old Testament was a theocracy, like I said. It was a, a nation governed by God. The church is no longer a theocracy. The church is not a nation. We are not a political entity. We have not been given political power and we've not been given the power of the sword to enforce God's will. The bloody wars of Israel and her enemies were a shadow of this deeper, more significant spiritual conflict that continues until Christ returns. 
The death and resurrection of Christ were the defining moment of the war. In a real sense, everything that's happened since then is just playing out to the conclusion that was guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says, while we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, took upon himself a human nature and lived a perfect life among us. But then he offered up his life, his perfect life as a sacrifice, which means he became the enemy of God. Our sins were placed upon him, and the judgment that we deserved as God's enemies was placed upon him. He became the ultimate enemy of God, and God judged him at the cross as he bore the whole pains of hell as he died in our place. But then his resurrection was the great reversal. His resurrection proved that the price was paid, that he had conquered death, that he had conquered Satan, and that Satan has no more power over us who belong to him. Colossians 2.15 says, God set aside our sin, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Satan, his name means accuser. And the accuser has no power to accuse us any longer because Christ has paid the, price, the full price for our sins. Satan has no power over us. Death has no power over us. So, again, what does it mean, though, to fight the good fight in light of what Christ has done? Well, first of all, we must know our enemy. I think a big problem in the church today is we've lost sight of who our enemy is. We must always be aware that there are spiritual forces at work in, among, and around us. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul wasn't talking about his day, he's talking about all our days. This is not some past reality, this is current events. These spiritual forces of evil are working against the church and against the Lord Jesus Christ as we speak. Right now, he is protecting this sanctuary so that his word can be preached. Because the spiritual war goes on. And Satan and his followers, as Peter tells us, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But don't lose sight of the fact that we also, even though Paul says our enemies are ultimate enemies, our primary enemies, our spiritual, don't lose sight of the fact that we also have flesh and blood enemies. We forget that sometimes. That there are people who either knowingly or unknowingly are fighting against Christ and his gospel, and they for, therefore are enemies of the church and enemies of God. Paul says in Philippians Chapter 3, verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Do you weep over the enemies of the church as Paul wept? The most obvious example of enemies of the church are false teachers. False teachers outside the church who lead people astray from Christ and astray from the gospel. 
and even more. The harshest language of the New Testament is against false teachers in the church who in the name of Jesus lead people astray from Jesus and astray from the gospel. They are enemies of God and enemies of the church and they're in our midst. And we don't take that seriously enough. Jesus said to the Pharisees, those that were in the visible church of his day, he said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And unless the enemies of God change sides, like Rahab changed sides in Jericho, they will come under his eternal destruction and condemnation. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. All humanity is divided over who Jesus is and what he came to do. So yes, we have spiritual enemies and they are our ultimate enemies, but we also have flesh and blood enemies and we need to be aware of that. Secondly, we must know what our weapons are. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5 say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Praise God that Jesus Christ didn't put swords or guns in our hands to go to war. Because those are so weak and temporary. He gave us something far more powerful. He gave us weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those weapons? He goes on to say, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We fight with truth. That is our primary weapon. We've been given the very truth of God in his word. And it is accompanied always, when it's faithfully proclaimed and taught, it is always accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts and lives. There is no more powerful force in the world than the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working together to bring change to hearts, to cultures, to nations. The early church learned in the book of Acts that this sword of the Spirit that they were handed had the power to cut to the heart of the people who heard it. Ephesians 6 says that we have the armor, the spiritual armor of truth, righteousness, faith, and salvation. And yes, we are given the sword of the Spirit and also the weapon of prayer. We fight with the Word of God and we fight with prayer. And in those two, we are invincible in the name of Christ. And then finally, the weapon, and here's where I, God loves reversals. We've seen that in the book of Esther. The great reversal of all time is that after the death and resurrection of Christ, not only are we given the weapon of the word of God, which the Old Testament had in a lesser form, and I mean in a, in, a, in a less complete form, not only are we given the Holy Spirit, we are given the weapon of love. That's what's so ironic about the New Testament is that we are to fight with our enemies by loving them. That's what Jesus taught us. That's not contrary to the idea of a spiritual war. Jesus says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 30, 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Paul elaborates on that over in Romans chapter 12 where he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's saying, by so doing, you're going to win the spiritual war. By loving your enemies, not destroying them. It's up to God to destroy. It's up to God to judge. It's up to God to bring the final judgment. You love your enemies. We preach the word. We teach the word. We live the word. And we pray for God to change hearts. And we love everyone, especially our enemies. Speaking the truth in love, that's a powerful phrase. Because that's the key to our victory. Speaking the truth in love. We may lose our lives. We may lose our belongings. But we will win the war if we speak the truth in love consistently. I want to end by talking about four mistakes that Christians make when it comes to a holy war. When it comes to spiritual warfare, four mistakes, just quickly. First mistake is that we either deny or ignore the war. Huge mistake is to deny or to ignore the war. Either consciously or unconsciously, many Christians think of spiritual warfare as primitive, unscientific, that we've evolved, we've grown beyond that. We're too smart for that now. We're too enlightened. And if you deny or ignore the spiritual war and the spiritual forces that are against us, you will pay for it. You will be at their mercy. Secondly, some Christians sensationalize the war. They become preoccupied with the supernatural. And they get involved in unbiblical rituals and practices, trying to call on angels and bind demons, where these things were not given to us in Scripture as ways to fight the battle. Yeah, that would be a lot more exciting. They'd be making movies about what we're doing if we could call down angels and bind demons and, and do those kinds of things. But that's not how we're to fight the war. We're to speak the truth in love and love our neighbor and love our enemy. Thirdly, many Christians make friends with the enemy. In loving and reaching out to the enemies of God, they begin to identify with the enemy. And they conform to the thinking of the enemy and the ways of the enemy. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We are to love our enemy, but we are not to become like our enemy. And that's happening in the name of the church everywhere, where the church is starting to adopt the ways of the world, that they see that and they'll portray that as being compassionate, but what it is is betrayal of Christ and to put yourself on the wrong side, on the losing side of history. But then finally, and this is where it may get a little closer to home for some of us, some Christians mistake friends for enemies. Some Christians mistake friends for enemies. You know, this is kind of one way in which our spiritual battles are like the battles of the Jews in Persia because they were in exile. They weren't in a theocratic state. They were not the nation of Israel. They were exiles. They were slaves. They were taken away as captives to Persia. And they lived in and among 
a foreign nation. They were citizens of God's kingdom, but living in exile in, the kingdoms of, in a kingdom of man. And the New Testament says we are exiles. We are sojourners. It's very easy to get confused about who the enemy is when you're mixed in among them. Back in the, World War, in the American Civil War, that was actually a big problem early in the war, was knowing who's who. Because all the combatants in the Civil War, the North and the South, all the combatants looked alike. Matter of fact, some of them was from the, were some of the, from the same family. And early in the war, they didn't really think this was going to be a long, protracted war. So early in the war, they weren't really, really that careful about uniforms. The uniforms weren't uniform. Um, they, didn't, they didn't always look alike, and they used different colors and different styles. And you can imagine what kind of confusion this would be on the battlefield. You're not sure if the guy you're shooting at is your, your, on your side or their side. And eventually they realized you have to make the uniforms look a lot more like each other in order to keep this from confusion from happening. And I just think there's a lot of confusion in the church today because we're starting to shoot at friends like they're enemies. We're attacking friends, people on our side, like they're enemies. And we've got to be careful not to do that. We destroy the witness of the church when we do that. We live in a very divisive culture. Probably one of the most divisive cultures in history, where people divide over politics, they divide over social issues, they divide over justice issues, they divide over environmental issues. And, the, you know, God only has one opinion on all these subjects. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about anything. He cares very much about all these subjects. And he has one opinion, and we are to be striving together as believers to figure out what God's opinion on all these political, social issues, what his opinion is, so we can conform to that. But... In the process of trying to work that out together, don't start fighting with each other like we're enemies. The battle line is over the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the spiritual war's battle line is. Don't ever lose sight of that. Where Jesus Christ is talked about who he is according to God's word and what he has done for us according to God's word, that's the battle line. I may disagree with my brother on many lesser issues than the gospel. But if we agree about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do, then we are on the same side. We're fighting for the church of Jesus Christ, the church that he loves. And I need to treat him as a brother, not an enemy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul addresses those who are opposing his teaching in the church. Obviously not the teaching about the gospel, but some other lesser issues. And he talks about those that are opposing his teaching, and he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Don't let him go on in his error, but warn him as a brother. Don't treat him as an enemy. Are there Christian brothers, maybe even in this fellowship, that you're treating like an enemy instead of a brother? We've got to make sure we stay together as we fight the enemy, because the enemy's real. The enemy's all around us. And the war is being fought at a fever pitch. Are we on the front lines? And are we focused on the enemy? Or are we shooting the wounded? I'm going to end in just a moment. I'll, you'll notice after we sing our final song, I'm going to end with a benediction from Romans chapter 16. But let me read it to you now so you can be thinking about it. This is how Paul ends the letter of Romans. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me say it again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
It's encouragement for you as you go out to fight the battles today, tomorrow, for the weeks and months to come. The war's already been won. The outcome is determined. Fight for love of Christ and for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, by your grace, your sovereign grace, turning us from enemies into your beloved church. Thank you for our champion, our great warrior, who has accomplished the defining victory at the cross and the empty tomb and will come to bring the war to conclusion. Lord, keep us focused on the power that we have through the word of God and the Holy Spirit that that abides with us and in us. And Lord, help us to identify our enemies, but love our enemies with the love of Christ, that they might experience that same transition from being enemies of God to beloved children. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.